It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, Russia accuses Ukraine of attacking the Kremlin with drones. We speak to a Danish investigative reporter about new evidence of Russian ships in the Baltic Sea ahead of last year's Nord Stream explosions. And I ask our associate editor for defence, Dom Nichols, whether he thinks Ukraine's counteroffensive has already begun. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of May, one year and 68 days since a full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, foreign reporter Genevieve Hall-Allen, and our guest is Frederick Hugo Ledegaard, an investigative journalist at Denmark's radio. I started by asking Dom about the news that broke just five minutes before we went live on air, that Russia is accusing Ukraine of a drone attack on the Kremlin. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So, yeah, we do start with breaking news because it's literally just hit us in the last five minutes. So I'm going to I'm going to be reading this, I'm afraid. Difficult to make a huge amount of sense out of it. But we are hearing that two Ukrainian drones, that is according to the Kremlin. So just let me get to the end and then we'll then we'll pull it apart. Two Ukrainian drones tried to attack Vladimir Putin's residence in the Kremlin late last night. That's according to the Russian presidential press office. They say neither president nor his schedule was in any way affected by the attack. The report just in the last couple of minutes. Kremlin's press office described the incident as a planned terrorist attack and an assassination attempt and pledged to retaliate. Russia reserves, this is what they're saying, Russia reserves the right to retaliate when and where it deems necessary. And shortly before the statement, so just a few minutes ago, a public neighbourhood group on Telegram published two videos showing a plume of white smoke rising over the Kremlin last night. OK, end, end of dit, end of, end of reading the, the news as it's breaking. So this is fresh to us, as fresh to us as it is to you. So they're saying, they're saying two drones, well, saying drones, they're saying two drones, they're saying two Ukrainian drones. We can't verify any of that at the moment. 
but it does look as if something's happened. I mean, I'm I'm about to talk about some other other bits and pieces that have that have gone bang in Russia in the last 24 hours. There does seem to be something going on here. So let let me carry on, and we'll, then we'll sort of wrap all this up in 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 some analysis, if I may. So we've also got. Uh, so another Russian freight train was derailed by an explosion in the Bryansk region. So Bryansk is to the north and sort of northeast of Ukraine. It borders Ukraine and Belarus. So this was the second incident to occur in recent days after, you remember we spoke yesterday, another train was derailed by a bomb in the same area on Monday, the same region of, of Russia, Bryansk region. Don't know exactly where this one today was, but but it's on the north of Sumy, northeast of Chernihiv, north northish, northwest of Kharkiv, that that area. So Bryansk governor said an unidentified explosive device went off near the Snetsskaya railway station. No casualties. As a result of the incident, a locomotive and several wagons of freight train were derailed. No mention of who was responsible. But as I say, several incidents occurred in Russia and Crimea over the past few days. So we had the other rail line explosion yesterday, and over the weekend there were power lines blown up near St. Petersburg, and now you've got this alleged drone attack in the Kremlin. So, I mean, it's a huge, huge cr- country, and we don't know if any... So I'm not suggesting they are connected, but, I mean, these are very odd odd incidents. OK, let me, let me now just carry on for a moment. So also overnight, a fuel depot has gone up in smoke in the Russian village of Volna. So this is very close to the Kirsch Bridge, linking to Ukraine, Crimea. The governor of Krasnodar Krai, so that's the region of Russia, immediately east of Crimea. He spoke on Telegram, well, he, he posted on Telegram this morning. A tank with petroleum products caught fire in Volna, Volna village of Temurutskri district, so that district is the sorry. This is me speaking now. That vi- that bit is the that's the bit of Russia sticking out at Crimea, sort of pointing pointing at Crimea. Stop me if you're getting too technical and geographic. But you no, know, the bit of Russia that sticks out and points at Crimea, from which the Kirsch Bridge leaves Russian territory. That's where we're talking about. And the village of Volna is one of the last sort of built up areas before the Kirsch Bridge starts. So that's where this thing has gone bang. So the governor carried on. He said the fire has been assigned the highest level of severity. Sounds pretty bad. And Russian state news agency TASS are saying the fire was caused by the fall of a drone. I guess they mean a drone that's fallen out of the sky. So, right, there's a lot of things going on here. Another Russian freight train blown up in in Bryansk. Fuel depot fire. Something happening potentially in the Kremlin on the back of, over the weekend, power lines destroyed near St. Petersburg. So... Yeah, it's we don't know, do we? It's difficult to say if this is if this is any way orchestrated, if it's some kind of Ukrainian attack, Ukrainian sponsored attack. We we just don't know. We are bringing you the news analysis. We'll have to follow, I'm afraid. But carrying on, if I may. So more airstrikes. So last night, Russia Russia's launched another round of airstrikes across the country, including the capital. So in last night's attack an administrative building in the Dnipro region was hit so this is sort of center center east of the of the country on the river the fire was it hit an administrative building no casualties reported fire was out by this morning according to the regional governor and in kiev ukraine's air force command said that all so the air defense systems that were activated over kiev hit everything that was fired at them and in total 21 of 26 shahid 136 so these iranian made drones that we 
talk about a lot. 21 of 26 were were destroyed. All of those, they didn't put a figure on the number that went aimed at Kiev, but all of those aimed at the capital were destroyed. So Air Force Command said all enemy targets were identified and shot down in the airspace around the capital. And this is the the third round of night attacks in six days, Russian air attacks in six days. Today's British Defence Intelligence report talks about a possible shift from Russia away from attacking civilian infrastructure and the power networks and what have you towards trying to hit Ukraine's military, industrial and logistic nodes and and infrastructure more broadly. I don't know how accurate that is based on the attacks last night. Okay, an, an administrative building in Dnipro, that could be some massive logistic headquarters or it just could be a building with with civilians nearby. So I'm not sure about that UK defence intelligence report. But as I said as I said before, and this was what we got from Western officials, Russia is still in the habit of getting all the new shiny stuff in and then just splurging it straight away. I mean we are told that the Donbass and Bakhmut in particular is is the priority at the moment. They are throwing thousands of men at it and yet they seem to get these new missiles and the new drones in and then splurge them in fairly pointless air attacks across the country that are just causing misery to to civilians they are not in any way denting the morale or or rather to the extent that the civilians are, are saying to their military and political leadership we've had enough it's just not happening the winter offensive has failed that's what the white house said yesterday so i don't know why russia are doing it because i'm still i'm still potentially looking at this through the lens of a, a former professional military officer very small p because this is not how you do war if you've got a priority then you then you work to that priority and you integrate your air and missile forces to that priority and if you're saying that the donbass and bakhmut is your priority then why are you firing missiles around the place that are getting shot down in kiev and hitting a building in hundreds of miles away in Dnipro? it just doesn't make sense and it just comes back to that meme that you would have seen going around social media of the Ukrainian guy in the trench saying, we are lucky they are so king stupid. I think it absolutely underlines that. One last point before I, before I pause. The governor of Hezon region has said that there's going to be a 58-hour curfew. I don't know if that's 58 or 48. It's reported as 58-hour curfew from Friday, Friday evening. Residents are being ordered to evacuate the area last week. And that was on the back of the military administration saying that Russia has increased bombardments in the Hezon region. So we're now in the south of the country, the Hezon. So Alexander Pudukin, Prakudin, sorry, he said, we've recently noticed that the enemy has ramped up bombardments on Hezon Oblast, as well as the rest of Ukraine. I cannot let the people of Hezon suffer. Restrictions are necessary so that law enforcement officers can do their job and not put you in danger. The city will be closed for entry and exit being outside is prohibited. Interesting. I mean, that, that, is a, that is an interesting response. We've not seen that before. Whether or not this is just adding to the whole information battle of the, uh, the, you know, the potential forthcoming anticipated counteroffensive, I think that's very interesting. I, I question, I think we're deep in the information battle. I think the counteroffensive has started. I think this is it. I think we're, we're in the shaping operation as we, as we discussed yesterday. You don't have to start shooting at people to, uh, to, to be... You know, to be contacting the enemy. I think we are in the information war here. And I think this curfew in Hezon is part of that. As for all the other stuff, the strikes, again, I think it's fairly pointless by Russia, but speaks of a, they've run out of ideas. They just don't know what to do. They, they are doing what they 
what they can. They get the new stuff in from Iran and then they just you know, light the blue touch paper. That is, there's no point to that at all. The other stuff is much more interesting and we will track the, the, the news from the Kremlin. I'm going to be looking at that as we talk today, hopefully bring some more comment on that by the by the end but yeah there's a lot a lot happening bits and pieces which i think is 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 very interesting and designed in many ways to unsettle russia and their and russian minds for fix their minds to get them thinking in many different directions ahead of this anticipated offensive but i'll take a pause there Thanks, Tom. Just to bring you some more breaking news that's coming in on our live blog right now. But the mayor of Moscow has issued a ban on all drones over the Russian capital. This is after the Kremlin claimed it had thwarted a Ukrainian drone attack. Dmitry Peskov, Vladimir Putin's spokesman, has been giving some quotes. He told the RRA Novosti news agency that Mr. Putin was actually not at the Kremlin at the time. He was in his out-of-town residence of Novo Ogarovo. And we will come back to this. Genevieve Hall-Allen, you've joined us from the Foreign Desk at The Telegraph. You've been running the live blog all day today. Could you talk us through some of the big stories that you've been watching? I know we need to talk, I think, first of all, about developments in the Ukrainian grain and produce coming into the EU and coming into EU countries. What's happening there? Hi, thanks very much, David. It's great to, to be on the on the podcast. Um, yes, the first piece of news that I'm going to talk about today is is based on reporting by Joan Barnes, who is the Telegraph's Brussels correspondent. And um, yes, this is the latest update in in kind of the the, the situation with grain coming out of Ukraine. Um, and this is that the EU has allowed five member states, that is Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia and Hungary, to ban imports of Ukrainian grains. This ban could cover wheat, maize, rapeseed and sunflower seed and could last until June the 5th. Now, it's it's a, it's, it's a notable update, it's a notable kind of change in tack here because it represents the first major challenge really to united support from from the eu bloc in terms of supporting ukraine through this war and and looking at certain nations looking towards their own domestic concerns and and those winning out i mean this emergency yes this emergency blockade could cost up to 160 million pounds or you know to our our us listeners 200 million dollars to the ukrainian economy according to the national bank analysis and these five countries will also receive 100 million euros to compensate farmers who are impacted by cheap imports um, now, th- these countries, with the exclusion of Hungary, are particularly staunch allies of Ukraine. So this this has been you know, quite a surprising update as it has unfolded. Thanks, Genevieve. Can we stay in Ukraine then? President Volodymyr Zelensky is out of the country. He's made a surprise unscheduled trip to Helsinki in Finland. What's he doing there? Yes, so he has arrived in, in Finland for a, a one-day summit with leaders from the Nordic countries. This includes prime ministers of Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Iceland. And obviously, President Zelensky will be meeting with the pre- Finnish president as well. In terms of what, what they're going to be discussing, this is in the words of the Swedish government. The theme of the summit is Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, the Nordic countries' continued support for Ukraine, Ukraine's relationship with the EU and NATO, and Ukraine's initiative for just peace. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's 
evident that these countries are particularly interested in and affected by the developments between Russia and Ukraine. You just have to look at Finland joining NATO last month, becoming the 31st member of the alliance and its application prompted by the invasion, because of course it shares a a 832-mile border with Russia. And, you know, this concern from the Nordic countries is is encapsulated by the words of the Norwegian Prime Minister today, who said, the war is a turning point for our entire continent. Here in the north, we have a more unpredictable and aggressive Russian neighbour. And it is important that we discuss together how to face this new situation. You know, as, you know, expected, President Zelensky will be looking to allies to secure more you know, support, financial, military and humanitarian in the continuance of of this war. And also the news today that Zelensky is to visit Berlin to meet Chancellor Olaf Scholz on May the 13th. So that's kind of his movements outside of Ukraine for the next couple of weeks. There's been an interesting article in the Washington Post looking at Zelensky's some, some things Zelensky has said about the Pentagon leaks that we've been talking about for quite a few weeks now. There was some new information from Vladimir Zelensky. What did he say? Yes, yeah, so speaking um, to the newspaper, the Washington Post from Kiev, President Zelensky has said that Washington did not tell him about the Pentagon leaks before the news broke. Now, this news came out in, in early April and a lot of the US intelligence that was leaked onto Discord, the social media platform, was sensitive information in terms of the Ukraine war. I mean, among those documents that that were leaked included US intelligence suggesting that a counter offensive could fall in 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 their words well short of Kiev's goals and it also said again in in quotes that enduring Ukrainian deficiencies in training and munition supplies probably will strain progress and exacerbate casualties during the offensive so pretty pretty significant stuff coming out coming out there and yes in an interview with the Washington Post who who first reported much of the leaked intelligence president Zelensky said I did not receive information from the White House beforehand. We did not have that information. I personally did not. He said it was, and then in quotes, definitely a bad story and described it as an unprofitable situation. Pentagon Press Secretary um, Pat Ryder would neither confirm nor deny what President Zelensky had said and told CNN that Washington remains committed to working very closely with Ukraine and our international allies to ensure that they have the security assistance they need to be able to defend their country. It, it, you know, when when Zelensky was asked whether it had strained trust between the countries, according to Washington Post reporting, um, the president said, I cannot risk our state, which is a quite interesting response to that question. Thanks very much, Genevieve. Can I ask you just to talk about one more story you've been looking at? We're going to leave Washington, go back to Russian-occupied Crimea. Um, it's a story about the FSB, Russia's security service. Yes. So as we heard from, from Dominic, you know, the crime, uh, situation in Crimea has really been getting ever more tense in recent days. And we've just kind of heard today that the FSB, that's Russia's security service, has arrested seven people who they claim were members of, and then in quotes, an an agent network of Ukrainian military intelligence. Um, The FSB accuses them of planning a series of attacks in in Russian-occupied Crimea. 
the service said in a statement that they have broken up the activities of an agent network of Ukrainian military intelligence, planning to carry out major sabotage and terrorist attacks in Crimea. Among those, they alleged that there were plans to plot to assassinate the Russian-installed head of Crimea, Sergei Aksyonov, who later you know, wrote on Telegram following this news that there is not any doubt that those who ordered the crimes are in Kiev and then called Ukraine a terrorist state. There were, you know, not in, not in that telegram message was there evidence to support support that. The FSB, going back to what, what they said, they apparently seized explosive devices and detonators, which they say were smuggled into the country from Bulgaria via Turkey and Georgia. Well, thank you very much, Genevieve. I'm sure we'll be coming back to, to this story later on. But can I welcome our guest, Frederick Hugo Lidegaard from, from Denmark. Frederick, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Hello, everyone. Thank you for inviting me today. It's a pleasure. You've been working on some really interesting investigative reporting with colleagues across Scandinavia. Could you tell us a little bit about the story you've been working on? But actually, maybe before that, just set the scene for us. You've been looking at the movement of Russian ships and um, shipping in the North Sea. So, so actually, for the last year since since the full-scale invasion broke out last year, we've been investigating covert Russian operations in the Nordic countries. So this includes espionage, sabotage, what happens at the sea, disinformation and the like. And uh, in the last three weeks, we have been revealing some of these stories in our documentary Putin's um, Hidden War and our English-spoken podcast Cold Front. And now today we release the rest of the episodes where we have a story, an investigation into three Russian vessels uh, that have been in the area of the later Nord Stream explosion sites, especially the northern ones. Well, let's get into this story then. What did you look at and what did you find? And please feel free to go into the detail. Yes. So we have access to intercepted radio communication from the Russian Navy that reveals how three Russian Navy vessels were operating near uh, the Nord Stream explosion sites in June and September last year and that they were operating with their AIS signal turned off. So they are like navigational transponder. So operating as uh, dark vessels or ghost ships. The vessels are an unidentified Russian Navy vessel and hydrographic ship like research uh, vessel Cypriakov from the Russian Navy as well. And the Sea Talk, also called the Salvage Talk SB123. And the expert we have talked to says that especially the last two have capacity to conduct underwater operations. So have equipment in the water, launch small underwater drones or launch other stuff into the water. And um, the first ship that we haven't identified visited the area of the northern explosion sites uh, in the beginning of June and was there briefly. The second ship, the Sibriaco, visited the area one week later and stayed there for almost 24 hours in the area while conducting slow speed activity three times. So this data isn't they, they don't, in the messages, the radio communication, they don't say exactly what they're doing. We only have the, the location, the speed and the direction. But a satellite image from the night where the Cypriaco was there in, in the middle of June shows that there were actually two ghost ships, only 100 meters and a few kilometers from the later leakage sites. And they have no wake. So the uh, radar imagery su- suggests that they 
are operating still in the water. And they both have both have the same lens, roughly as the Cibriaco. So we don't know if uh, in, uh, which of these ships is the Cibriaco or, or anyone of the mist. So we have no radio communications during that night. There is a 12-hour gap. And the last ship, SB-123, the SeaTac from the Russian Navy, is really interesting because it corresponds with what we already know, but haven't been able to prove with data. So in March, T-Online, the German media, talked about six Russian Navy ships that, according to German intelligence sources, was in the area of the later Nord Stream explosion sites on September 22nd, just four days before the explosions. And now we can place one of these ships, the SB-123, via this radio, intercepted radio communication in the area between the northern and south southern explosion sites. And just last week, the Danish newspaper Information confirmed that the Danish patrol vessel Nymphen took 26 pictures of one more of these six ships, the SS-750, which is a Russian Navy ship with extensive underwater capabilities, including the ability to launch and support small submarines. So actually this, now we have data of four Russian Navy ships in the area before the explosions happened. Well, it's an astonishing story, Frederick. Thank you for going into so much detail for us. Before we go on, would you just summarise for our listeners what we know, what we think we can prove, what you think you can prove, and also what we don't know? Yes. So the important thing about this story is that we don't conclude anything else that these ship, these vessels were here. So um, that's that's it's purely based on, on data. And in that way, we have been uh, finding satellite imagery from their routes, radar imagery and optical images that supports these routes. So we know that they were there. At least we have like, uh, for example, six in the morning, nine in the morning, 12 at noon, and then again, 15, 18 o'clock. So we don't know what they did in between them these times. We don't know what they did. We, We can't see it. I don't know if you have seen radar imagery, but it's more like it's very pixelated. You can't see at all what the ships are, are doing. So there's a lot we don't know, but what experts tell us is that it's highly suspicious and interesting that these vessels, specifically these vessels, were in the area in months and days up to because they have underwater capabilities and uh, some of them are known to support submarine trials. Could you tell us a little bit about your investigative process in in this story what obstacles have you found as as journalists working across scandinavia to try to try and get to the bottom of this yes i think so um normally as an investigative reporter if you for example investigate a, a murder you look for someone being there on the same day as the murder has happened uh but what sources tell is that very likely these explosive no matter who did it was placed days or even weeks or months before so like the smoking gun that you're always looking for in a mystery, perhaps is impossible to find. So that was a really like hard obstacle to have from the beginning. So we've uh, just set out to ourselves to find all the interesting vessel activity in the area in, in the months leading up to. And, and these now four Russian Navy ships are, according to experts and sources, definitely interesting in that regard. May I ask, what has the reaction been inside Scandinavia to your reporting, but also Russia? What have you heard from the Russians on this? 
Yeah, so actually reached out to the Russian embassy in Copenhagen uh, some weeks ago, but didn't get any answer. But today, the um, Russian foreign ministry has said that our story is, uh, and I quote, a part of a Western misinformation campaign to ensure that those who ordered and perpetrated this act of international terrorism are never identified. So they, uh, yeah, they, they deny these, yeah, our, our story. And. Just quickly, what's the reaction like in the public in, in Scandinavia? I mean, these, these explosions, when they happened, I mean, they're very, very close to, to, to Denmark and Sweden and Norway. Yeah, so actually, when the explosions happened, we were already investigating seabed warfare. There's been some cable cuts in Norway close to Svalbard, which an NRK investigation found was likely done by some Russian, Russian fishing vessels. So we were already investigating this area of seabed warfare so, um, yeah, we just jumped right, right on it. My colleague Nils jumped out in a, in a plane to, to watch the leakage sites. And, and the same day as it happened, we actually sat in a room together. You can see it in do- the documentary as well. And, and uh, see when the first pictures of these huge bubbles in the water form after the explosion. So, of course, this is a, a huge story in, in Scandinavia, but it, it seems like it's, it's a huge story in, in all over the world, at least when it when it happened. Did anything surprise you during this process? Did anything that you found su- surprise you as, as an investigative journalist looking into this? So I I guess my um, I I thought that military Russian Navy uh, radio communication would be encrypted and and impossible to to access. So I was really surprised when we found this former intelligence officer from the British Navy that was uh, able to listen in on uh, internal uh, radio communication from from the Russian Navy. And I I was really surprised by by that. But uh, together with satellite imagery and and, uh, AIS data where it was possible and and sourced it, we have been able to to support and and confirm this route that uh, these data data show. But yeah, I was really surprised that this was even possible the first time uh, I heard about it. Frederick, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think our listeners should should understand before we go to see if Dom has any questions? Yeah, so I think the important thing to underline here is that this is, uh, of course, interesting information, uh, according to our sources, no matter what. They say that this could be related to the Nord Stream explosions, but that this could also be related to something unknown. But no matter what, the way these vessels communicated and operated was suspicious in uh, in some sort, according to our sources. And uh, one uh, independent British naval analyst called H.I. Sutton has an interesting quote. And what he says is that if we had this information right after the explosions happened, it would might have been a, a a different a different media picture uh, in the in the following months than what we have seen. Dom, do you have any questions? Yeah, hi, Frederick. Thanks so much for joining us. Just a quickie, if I may. I wonder if you could give us a quick view of the Baltic Sea, so sort of the northern NATO lake, if you like. Now people are calling it with with hopefully Sweden and Finland's accession to NATO. How do you see the threat from Russia there, in particular the exclave of Kaliningrad, and and how is it becoming militarized? Thanks. So. Um... These three vessels are all part of the Russian Navy, Baltic Sea Navy. And um, 
the ships leave their ports in Lomonosov, St. Petersburg, and Baltusk, Kaliningrad, before they uh, they visit these areas. And and as you know, uh, the the Baltic Sea has uh, all the Baltic countries, the Scandinavian countries, and Germany, Poland, and then this small part of Russia called Kaliningrad. And uh, that is actually pretty close to uh, to these uh, later Nord Stream explosion sites. And uh, just a, a fun fact that uh, my family on, on the Danish island Bornholm will appreciate. Actually, Bornholm is so close to Russia that when Denmark was liberated after World War II, uh, Bornholm, the Danish island, was only liberated from the Soviet Union one year later in 1946. So this is an area with... Uh, with uh, a Cold War history, and yeah, now it seems like something is happening here again. Thank you very much, Frederick. Can I ask you just to tell us where to find your story? You, you said you've launched a podcast series. Can you tell us about that? And just finally, I mean, we've gone into a lot of detail now. Would you very quickly just sum up what you found? Yes. So should I sum up first, maybe? What we have found is three Russian Navy vessels that in June and September last year visited the area of especially the northern, later northern explosion sites of the Nord Stream pipeline, and that experts believe this to be highly suspicious and interesting in uh, relation to these uh, Nord Stream explosions. This is not a conclusion, but this is some data that we put forward and hopefully will bring clarity. Yeah. And uh, this story you can hear much more about in our English Spoken, our first international podcast, uh, Cold Front, with six episodes where we go into espionage, seabed warfare, disinformation, and even a, a killing attempt in, in Sweden. That sounds- it's available everywhere, Apple, Spotify, where you listen to your podcasts. And I will say just quickly to listeners that we will put a link to Cold Front in the show notes for today's episode. Frederick, thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely fascinating hearing this. And I, I do believe we're you know, one of the first outlets really to, to get to get the full story from you. So thank you so much for your time. It's hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Dom Nichols, can I go back to you? You've been well all the way through this podcast. Listeners might be aware that it's been rather frantic here in the studio um, as we're trying to discover as much as we can about these alleged uh, attacks, these drone attacks on the Kremlin in Moscow last night. Dom Nichols, is there anything more we know? Uh, Not really. So we just need to caution here. I would direct people, have a look at Eric Toller on Twitter. He's one of the Bellingcat researchers. I mean, he's got some, and it's elsewhere as well, but Eric has got some great footage of the this supposed drone something flying anyway something in the sky hitting the flag on top of the dome of the kremlin kremlin roof and as our, well i mean look we don't know what happened but it's incontrovertible that russia has commented about this and Arik is making the point. He says Russia went from bragging that they'd take Kiev in days to clarifying that Putin wasn't hurt by a Ukrainian drone attack in Moscow. So that, I mean, that is that is a legitimate comment. I would just uh, try and put this in a bit of perspective. So just remember, back in January this year, there were reports, and they're still out there, you'll, you'll find them on social media, that Russia was putting air defence missiles on a number of uh, buildings around Moscow. So we saw the Pantsir missile system on a Russian MOD building, one of the big eight-story buildings around um, in central Moscow. There was also one on the roof of an education building in about one and a half miles outside the Kremlin, southeast of the Kremlin. Now, Russian military officials did not comment at the time about these things, 
but it was widely reported by Russian media that there were S-400 systems also deployed in January in, in, in Moscow around December, January. So, you know, it does seem odd. Just just I just caution, you know, it seems it seems odd that something could get through what must be a very, very layered defence of air defence systems. Something's gone all that way, depending where it launched from, obviously, but something to get through the most the most highly layered air defense system in the world arguably one of the most doesn't mean it works we've seen a lot of russian kit not working but i just caution that that's an amazing strike if it is a ukrainian drone that's got that far i would also caution just have a look at the, have a think about the timing so it literally broke just before we came on here at 1300 bst so lunchtime london moscow's three hours ahead of us this strike happened reportedly last night the images that you'll see are dark you know now hey what time is what time's dawn in in moscow not entirely sure at the moment but the the reports and the imagery have just hit social media and just come out and yet this thing was supposed to have happened what 12 hours ago eight hours ago so you know i I don't know so hang on so let's let's with all that in mind just 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 to jump just to jump in sorry so sunrise in moscow tomorrow will be at 4 40 a.m so probably it was probably um Slightly, slightly later yesterday. If that's if that's helpful, Dom. Yeah, not really. Um, so, so let's say four o'clock for cash. <laughs> right? Let's say let's say these things happen at four o'clock. I don't. We don't know what time, but let's say it's dark at four o'clock. Four o'clock in the morning, zero four hundred Moscow time is zero one hundred BST here in London, and it's now thirteen hundred ish. So twelve hours later, worst case scenario, and yet we're only just getting news and imagery. So I just yeah, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm until proven. I'm skeptical but let's have a think about it if ukraine if it was legit if if ukraine did it and this is this is a, a ukrainian drone there have been multiple suggestions over the re- recent months from ukrainian officials hints that they've got some long-range drone capability and we've seen great innovation in the maritime domain we've seen those surface drones in the maritime domain we're still not exactly sure what happened to the moskva we think it was a a modified neptune or a couple of modified neptune missiles but we we don't know ukraine has demonstrated amazing ability to to innovate so maybe they have maybe they have maybe they have got something why now possibly because over recent weeks there's been a a huge inflow of air defence to Ukraine, and in particular around Kiev. So maybe they're feeling more emboldened to do something like this. I, you know, I speculate. I, I just come back to what what were the air defence? What were the air defence doing in Moscow to allow this thing to get through? So Russia's reaction. Now let's have a look at that. So they're going to use this as pro, almost certainly use it as part of their domestic narrative to shore up their position. But they've got to be careful because if they ramp up this threat then it's going to look more and more like this special military operation is a war. OK, that's what Eric Toller was saying. They've gone from saying, yeah, we'll be there in, in 72 hours, lads, to saying, don't worry, Putin wasn't killed in last night's drone strike. So they've got to be a bit careful with that. You know, and again, if they amplify the threat from Ukraine, it, it brings it, it home, doesn't it? We're only a week away from their May the 9th victory parade. You know, it was a sham last year, but this is a significant date for them. So do they want to be ramping up the threat from Ukraine a week a week before that, however, it, they might they might use it to justify striking targets in Kiev, the presidential buildings, what have you. I question would they care anyway? Wouldn't wouldn't they just go and do it? I think I think they would. You know, we we simply don't know. These, these thoughts are are put out there. I would I would I would hold these in your head and then consume the news through through them. 
and just so make your make your own mind up. We'll continue to analyse it. We'll be talking about it tomorrow and more. I'm sure. Just be just be remain sceptical. Let's have a look at the reaction from NATO and the US and, and so on. A lot of chat, obviously, about would the US allow Ukraine to have weapons that can strike inside Russia? I've never really been sold on that idea myself, but yeah, pa- perhaps the US reaction would would point, give us some pointers here. So just you know, let's wait to see what what's happening through the day. I question the capability. I question the timing. I question the the justification. But all set against that, Ukraine have shown the ability to surprise us all on the battlefield and further afield many, many times. Let's have a look for for more comment and more reaction, particularly from the US. Well, just on that, we've got an update on our blog uh, written by our guest earlier, Genevieve Hull-Allen. Russian ultranationalists are calling for blood after last night's alleged drone attack. So this is Igor Gerakin, a separatist commander and influential military blogger, said on Wednesday it was time for Moscow to launch a devastating strike on Ukraine. Quote, Ukraine should be destroyed, he wrote in his blog. Margarita Simonyan from Russia Today TV channel has also tweeted, maybe it's time to start it in earnest, referring to the invasion of Ukraine and echoing comments made by Putin last year. So that gives us slightly more of a flavor of how some of, of some some from Russia are reacting to this alleged strike on the Kremlin. Don, before we go... Can yeah, we... but well, hang, on, hang on a sec. But I mean, they react like that every time, you know, Putin stumbles on a step or you know, they, they do this all the time. They sort of, let's go kill them all. I mean, guys, you know, change the record. We've been hearing this for a year now. They do this. This is all they can do. I don't know how influential this 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 military blogger community are generally i mean we've seen some sometimes where they seem to have shifted policy perhaps about the the attacks on the civilian infrastructure but in terms of something like this like well, what else are they going to do they're already lobbing missiles around and killing killing civilians i mean if they they're they're calling for escalation well, what what else can can russia do what can they actually do they can they can talk a lot but as i said they've they've not gone anywhere on the battlefield for months now they can't knit together proper combined arms operations they've tried a attacking civilian infrastructure over the winter that's not not worked so i mean they great you say what you like lads i mean yes what you're saying is if i was a russian you i'd probably agree with you because you, yeah you've got to do something about this but Russia just have demonstrated an inability. If this turns out to be a Ukrainian Ukrainian strike that's that's hit a flagpole, I, I mean, poor old flagpole. But it's an amazing story. If they've developed something that can get that far and get through that layered air defence, I mean, that's absolutely criminal from the Russian military um, hierarchy. So, uh, yeah. So let, let's 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 read, digest, and then go and up, you know, the, the the comments from the Russian mill blogger community, and then go and read some more rational thought and analysis elsewhere but yeah we should we should note it and move on thanks very much don before we end can we talk a little bit more about the anticipated well you know we're sort of wondering what what words used to describe it the anticipated counteroffensive. we spoke yesterday about the shaping operations and it was very interesting to hear your views on, on how to conceptualize a, a shaping operation what it might involve how it involves much you know much more than potentially some of us think and you posed something to me earlier over over tea that. Should we ask the question, has the counteroffensive already started? Yes. I mean, that's a bit like, as I said at the start here, in terms of the information war, shaping this war, I wonder if it has started. So there has been, I said counteroffensives and and shaping operations can be incredibly violent. They sometimes, they need to be in order to make people think that, make the enemy think that it's already started or that it's a diversion or or what have you. So, you know, just because it's a shaping operation, it's, it's a, 
it's not the main event doesn't mean it's no less violent for that and of course it doesn't have to be involved shooting it can involve involve the information domain of which we're a part you know we are talking about this anticipated counteroffensive as if as if it's a done deal no one no one's told us that it's actually going to happen i think it probably will but what's to say that it that it doesn't i think the the best thing ukraine well no the worst thing that ukraine can get out of any counteroffensive is for the international community of supporters to shatter and that might happen if they if they i don't think ukraine would, would overpromise and underdeliver or over overpromise underdeliver is is yet to be decided the enemy gets a vote but i don't think ukraine would overpromise whether or not that idea is built up through comment to which we contribute i i think that's unhealthy to to dress this thing up as take the idea of the uh, Kharkiv uh, offensive last year that mad rush 50 60 70 k's east that's the template for success anything less than that is a failure you know that would be wrong and dangerous because it doesn't always work like that and i think i think if the more this idea is built up that only that kind of level of success counts and anything else is oh no dear me it's all it's all going bendy that that's unhelpful completely i think what ukraine need to do need to demonstrate from the counteroffensive is that they can do combined arms maneuver they can get the infantry working with the tanks the engineers the air defense everybody working working together that might be on a very 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 small scale but they've got to test it they've been training individually on their specific systems and vehicles then they're working as small teams within those groupings then they're working as combined arms they're meeting the opposition saying well how fast does your tank go because my infantry carrier goes a bit faster or a bit slower or what have you how are we going to time the run into the to the attack all that kind of stuff and then you've got to train 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 and then you've actually got to get bloodied in combat and i would suggest that you don't with this new thing bearing in mind there's a whole heap of capabilities here that are new to each other let alone new to ukrainians using it trying to move off a, a former soviet system onto nato equipment and calibers and all the rest of it i would suggest you don't throw that thing at a massive problem straight away and and, and you know, hope for a for a, fr- a an advance across the entire front in ukraine they are clearly not going to do that but the more that it is allowed, the idea is allowed to build in the public's consciousness that that is what success looks like, the more Ukraine are going to are going to have difficulty when they turn around and say, no, 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 fellas, we only wanted to do a 5k advance with a company group of 120 20 blokes, 12, 12 tanks and some infantry. That, that to us is success. If the world goes, oh, boring, we wanted Kharkiv too, then you know, that's not good. So I think we owe it we owe it to them to better understand what the capability is now and what it, what realistically might happen. And I, I really would counsel. I don't think it's going to be some pell-mell dash across the east of Ukraine. I think they'll be much smaller, tactical, maybe operational, you know, slightly a, a bigger lump than tactical. But these are going to be small operations to test and then adjust and, and go again when it's when it's when they've got a better idea of how to fight with all this new stuff. So I do think as part of all that. That the counteroffensive. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter when you draw a line, say it started, it hasn't started. I think we're already in it. I think I think they're already shaping the the information narrative, and I I think we have a duty here as well to to, to set it set the sensible analysis out in front of you know sophisticated consumers of information, which you all are, and let you make your own minds up. So I don't know. I'm not privy to any information from. Uh, from General Zeluzny about where they where they're going to go, left, centre, or right. But I just I just counsel that we should we should 
kind of lower our expectations. And that way, I think we will better be prepared for what success might look like. And also, there will be battlefield reversals when Ukraine get going. And we, we want to make sure that the first time that they, that they take a bloody nose and are pushed back and we see Russian forces advancing again, we don't go, oh, no, it's all gone it's horribly wrong. It's a complete failure. You know, we just need to take a chill pill and, and analyse it sensibly. Thanks very much, Dom. And thanks, listeners, for staying with us as we try to find out the latest for you in just... Uh, well, something has just come in, actually, on our live blog. Uh, the Kremlin has said that the Victory Day Parade on May the 9th is still to go ahead. The event taking place in Red Square, marking Soviet victory over the Nazis. As you remember, we've spoken about it quite a few times on the podcast. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov has told the Russian news agency TASS the parade will take place. There are no changes to the plan. So that's the latest piece of information that we're hearing. Dom Nichols, we've spoken a lot today. Do you have even a very brief final thought for us to end with? No, no. You've done Zelensky in Finland. No, I think we, we just let's watch out for reaction to the news coming out of Moscow. See what the US reaction is in, in particular. That will be that will be illustrative. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.